from the Film Society of Lincoln Center, you're listening to The Close-Up. Today we're sharing the Q&A from our sneak preview of Damsel, the fourth feature from brothers David and Nathan Zellner. In the film, a moneyed, seemingly guileless pioneer, played by Robert Pattinson, ventures across the Wild West with a drunken clergyman and a miniature horse to marry the love of his life. Showcasing the Zellner brothers' trademark unpredictability, off-kilter sense of humor, and unique brand of humanism, the film is a sharp, clever reinvention of the Western genre. Damsel is now playing in select theaters. Let's go now to our Q&A with David and Nathan Zellner. I'll start with a, a few questions and then we can open it up to the audience. Um, but um, I guess I'll start by asking how you arrived at making a film in the Western genre. Well, we've wanted to do, we wanted to do Western for a long time. Um, and there's some other Westerns we'd, we'd like to do uh, uh, eventually. But um, for this, we, we like the idea of, uh, of kind of taking the, 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 the tropes and cliches that, that were, um, yeah, that were so inherently part of so many Westerns are like, but just felt, you know, um, dated or tiresome and and kind of using that as a, a foundation for like an entry point for the movie where even regardless of whether or not you even like westerns you're at least familiar with like you know these archetypes of the hero and the villain and the damsel in distress and so kind of using that shorthand um in into the the story and then and then subverting it from there uh did it start with the damsel in distress sort of trope or was there a specific image or um I think the first thing was that well the the part that happens in the middle was kind of the first thing that that, that um, where everything's building from and we always knew we wanted that to be in the middle and the, with the like structurally kind of unconventional in that way with two halves where the first half is kind of Samuel's story and Penelope's part of it but it's all through his perspective and then the second half is Penelope's story but and kind of the ghost of Samuel's there in terms of the uh, he him you know causing this whole ordeal in the first place and that and people having to deal with the aftermath of it. Um, so that, that, was, that was how from the outset, how, where we wanted it to go. And then, I don't know, and then from there, the, as you were writing it, it's like, it just, you know, things kind of present themselves um, in terms of the way, uh, we felt, felt like, okay, every guy that encounters her should be <laughs> wanting to objectify her and, and trying to- Propose to her. Yeah. Right. And, um, Regardless of her interest or lack thereof, um, and then and, yeah, and starting from the, starting from the center, then it was it was fun to see how we could tie the threads together from the beginning and and in the end, and like the the prologue was was something that came a little bit later, but we liked how it set up sort of the tone that was kind of going forward through 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 all the characters and sort of like this 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 kind of weird moment where you know he, the the old preacher says that you know everything is going to be terrible and the young henry is is thinking that the grass is greener and everybody's kind of has that sort of um that that feeling of, of there's always something better if we can go get it and then the only one who um gets messed up with that is penelope so um going back to the <clears throat> that centerpiece scene in the film that creates this kind of psycho-like uh, split in the narrative. Um, 
I think it, it can kind of contributes to the, the interesting tone, the balance between comedy and pathos that you sort of maintain throughout the film. Um, can you talk about um, how you were conceiving of like the, the personality of the film, the tone of the film uh, from start to finish and how you managed to balance that and what you were thinking about? Um, well, everything we do has, uh, yeah, we're, we has some semblance of either uh, uh, the comedy or pathos and then, um, then it just, it's kind of just intuitive which way it leads um, as we're doing it. But this one, we, we knew it'd be like much more so than our previous film, Kamiko, for instance. But, uh, it, you know, we, we with a, did the, with, it's pretty faithful to the script. There isn't really any improvised dialogue or, or anything. Um, uh, but at the same time, you know, as we're, as we're, you know, from just like with any film, it, it evolves, you know, once, once you, once you cast it and kind of, you know, and then tailor things to their strengths with, um, and then, and then all the way through editing, just kind of, you know, finding, find, it's a tricky, it's a tricky balance with this, uh, like with the unconventional structure and then, and then where, it, you know, it's, it straddles the line of the humor and the, the pathos, but it's just, that's just, I don't know, that was part of what we're excited about with, with this particular uh, story. Could you talk about the casting process and how that sort of contributed to sort of turning the genre on its head, uh, especially with casting Robert Pattinson and Mia Wasikowska? I think both of those actors are generally not associated with uh, westerns or comedy, for that matter. That was what we liked about them, actually. We wanted, um, we wanted to cast people that, that people had a certain familiarity with, but, um, but that you, but you hadn't seen them do these roles before, um, so that you kind of, uh, kind of, so we were playing with expectations from the outset. Um, we, um, and that was what drew, thankfully, that was what drew them to the roles as well. They, they liked, you know, I think um, they liked things that I think other actors might be afraid of in terms of where they come into the movie or, or how they're, you know, what, how their characters perceive versus what they become. Um, those were the things, yeah, that, that excited them. Um, and so um, we, in the same way that there are certain elements of, of the, the, you know, the genre that we, like cliches that we wanted to, you, you know, use to, instead of being hindered by them, like you try to use them to our advantage. We want that we like the idea of that with, with the cast as well, like having certain expectations, um, uh, you know, based on, on what you're familiar, what their, their previous work that you're familiar with and that sort of thing. What makes this film so clever and surprising and, and funny is how you're sort of inviting the audience to actively think about what all of these references are and what these characters mean. Um, were there certain westerns, specific westerns or films that you had in mind as you were developing the story? Um, not a not a particular one that we are like name checking, but um, but I mean just I don't know. But then some of our favorites that we've gone back to a million times that, that there are a lot of. Uh, um, I really love McCabe and Miss Miller and, and love uh, Dead Man. Um, and then some older ones um, that were doing really interesting things, I think, it, like from the 50s, like, um, like uh, uh, Johnny Guitar, which is such a, such a strange, cool movie. And, um, and Sam Fuller's 40 Guns is, is a, another one like that. Um, and then I think with the score, well, also with, with the score from, I think, the score was another element where we wanted to, yeah, to have its own I identity um, and not be, you know, like, I don't know, it's just so, so many things. If you're trying to do a Western now and you're just copying what's been done before, it just, it's phony from the outset. So we, we kind of wanted to go very much in the other direction. And so that's why for this, we wanted kind of a, an acoustic kind of loopy kind of feel to it, but nothing, nothing like, you know, uh, you could, like, you want to, it'd be terrible to try to do something like Morricone or something like that. And so... That was every step of we tried to just kind of give it its its own identity in a way that was at least new to us. Yeah, the score with the Octopus Project, which you 
I've worked with him in the past before, um, I think kind of balances this period-specific tone at times and also comes sort of psychedelic and electronic. And the movie also has these um, in-scene sort of musical moments that, of course, remind you of Johnny Guitar, Rio Bravo. Um, and you have that moment with uh, uh, Russell Mail from Sparks. And so I'm, I'm curious of how uh, you were conceiving of the kind of uh, the musical landscape of the film. If you can talk more about that. Um, do, you want, do you want to answer? Well, I'll start. And, yeah. um, it's like, uh, I th you know, I th from the outset, we wanted that this kind of like dreamy kind of feel to the, the music. Um, there's a score for this movie, The, the Hired Hand, that, that Peter Fonda directed that has, that has a real, its own kind of, like a really interesting kind of dreamy acoustical vibe to it that, um, that was definitely inspiration for it. But... Um, and so, so, so when we, the Octopus Project, they're, they're, you know, they're, they're primarily electronic band. And so, you know, when we talked a lot about like that kind of dreamy type of vibe to it and they do dreamy music, but then they, they started um, using like a lot of banjos and, and, and other acoustic and old, older instruments. Like uh, in, in their normal music, they use a theremin. But in this, they used a, 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 a musical saw. Musical saw, and and so it was like some of, some of that translation that kind of kept it, um, you know, kind of out of the the two, you know, like uh, electronic pop type of feel to it, and, and kept it like this weird sort of hybrid. Um, I'll ask one more question before we open it up to the audience, but. Could you talk about your collaborative relationship as you're working on set, as you're writing, directing, obviously both acting in the film, how that division of labor works throughout? Um, yeah, I mean, we've just, we always think of it like we've just been, have made, been making home movies since we were little kids. And back when we started doing that at like 10 and 11, um, you didn't really know, you knew that there was someone in front of the camera and I guess you assumed someone was behind the camera, but you didn't really know what the roles were. You didn't know what a producer was or a director or a writer. You were just kind of uh, experimenting and, and, and making movies and having fun. And, and as we got, you know, um, as we as we studied the back of VHS cassettes when we were kids and like looked at all these credits and, and cross-referenced and started figuring it out and then um, got a little bit older, we just kind of always, you know, Shared and wore wore uh, multiple hats to 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 you know kind of make these 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 smaller films and then we would get bigger and we would start collaborating with with uh, more people and, and, and crew members and stuff like that. But it was it was always sort of like um, the, the the roles kind of always blended. Yeah. If that makes sense. Well, we have different strengths too. I think if we're identical in that, we'd maybe be at each other's throats more. But um, I'm a little more on the writing, directing side, Nathan a little more on the producing, editing side of things. But every th we don't like have some boundaries that we can't cross, and uh, it all overlaps ultimately. And, um, uh, and, and we, yeah, I don't know. And, and so by the time we've got, we're on set with it, we've lived with it for so long and in so many details that, that that's, uh, so like for this, for acting in it, we, we've, um, we make sure we, because kind of, it can be obnoxious to cast yourself in something, but it's just something we've always done, and we and we like doing it when it's appropriate, and you know, cat with it's a character that we know we can, um, that we can do. So it's just like we for like for this one, we just made sure we had uh, we we never have as no one would ever have as much time as, as we would in you know in, in developing the the you know the character and that sort of thing. So we would just make sure we'd have our act together so that when we're on set, like 
our, no one's waiting on us to figure out a character or, so, or something, and we can give all the time that we need to the, to the stars. And, and this film was particularly different than some of our last ones because David had such a, a, a larger role in the movie, um, you know, and so that to make, I mean, but we're, we're able to kind of switch off, you know, from acting to directing or figuring out what, uh, so we've, we've, we can um, multi, not multitask, but kind of. We're able to wear different hats with really. it. It's exhausting, but it's what we sign up for. But we make sure that we're, like David said, we're on the same page so that the crew isn't confused who to go to. So like if David is in the middle of getting ready for, you know, something or he's getting rigged up with explosives or whatever it is, they're not asking David questions on, on the camera or whatever, and they can know that they can come to me. Yeah, we have like the we have the we already have had that that discussion prior to the day or, or, or wherever. So. We can start taking some questions. We have some. Uh, yes, sir. I think we have some mics running around, so if you can hold on one second. Hello. Um, when you were writing this film, I'm curious to know whose story did you see it as? Did you start off writing it as Samuel's story, or did you always know it was gonna be about Henry, or did you wanna see it more as Penelope's story? So if you could just talk a little bit about you know, that writing process of through what perspective did you write it? Yeah, I mean, I think we wanted it, it to be kind of fluid, and it's been nice to show, you know, when we've gone and done these uh, screenings that people have kind of had have different interpretations on, on, on what that is. And, and I mean, we knew that, that, that Samuel was going to be an unreliable narrator from the outset and, and it be, you know, that, that you're going to be learning things at, at the same time as the preacher character was. Um, and, um, and then we knew that, yeah, that Penelope would be dominating the second half. And, uh, and, and so I think structurally, like you know, Penelope, like I was saying a minute ago, like Penelope is, is you're learning every you're learning. They're constantly talking about Penelope, but it's you know it's through Samuel's character that that's you know that, that's being presented. So it's, we just like the idea of of them being being you know present, both of them present throughout the whole movie, but just in in, diff, in different ways. And so it it, um, it it kind of yeah it kind of shifts. I don't know. It, it, it just, we we always knew it was never going to be one person's story, but it all kind of feeds into the overall thing. Yeah, and Parson Henry's character definitely is kind of like the thread that connects everybody. And when we were shooting it, a lot of what we talked with, even with uh, Robert Forrester's scene and, and and all the other stuff, it was like whose POV are we actually in this scene with? And and, and for the most part, it was, you know, Parson Henry is is sort of is sort of watching, and we're 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 with. We're with Samuel and his story and his quest, and we're with Penelope and, and her figuring out, you know, what to do with her life afterwards. And the I mean, one of the only times that we have this the shift, technically with the POV, is when Parson Henry has the gun by himself and he doesn't really know what to do behind the uh, the logs. And of course, everything goes haywire. So. I wanted to say first that you were really good to your word about how this was what. West was really like. <laughs> so I liked that. And and to that, I wanted to ask the dialogue, a lot of it uh, a win-win situation and so on. I, I wanted to know how that sort of juxtaposition with the reality of the Western and then when, what you were doing with that. Well, from the outset, we, we knew we wanted to not be historically accurate at all, and and what, um, or geographically accurate either. It's like we wanted to really play with like the mythic West, and it and um, 
and that that kind of it was very freeing to and because uh, no matter what we could do, it was never going to be a hundred percent accurate because we have no idea how it actually was. And so um, we, you know, um, uh, I think we from from the, the you know the look of the 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 production design through the the, the costume design and and then through, through the dialogue, we just kind of would kind of cherry pick the the best things that that we. That we liked, that kind of would um, would loosely fit in this in this realm, and so there's some like old West slang, but then mixing it with modern modern things, and we we just kind of it was just kind of an intuitive process that we would like kind of make this this kind of blend of, of all of that. Is there an animal that you want to work with that you have not worked with? <laughs> I don't know. A miniature horse is pretty high up there, so that was that might be the pinnacle. That was something we've I, we, we've never had. FaceTime with a miniature horse, and so you know, sort on a selfish level, subconsciously, that's how. Because uh, for a long time, I had an image in my head of a miniature horse with a chicken on its back, and 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 and, and on a boat, and uh, and and just thinking, I don't know, so these kind of ideas float around and then they take shape. So, um, the, the the casting, uh, the the miniature horse was uh, Butterscotch was played by Daisy, and it was her big screen debut. And um, she's no, her day job is a she's a service animal, and so she's very mellow and. And really, just even keel temperament, um, and uh, and so that we, we, we the casting was as hard as any any human in it because we needed to be a, the horse. We, we like using animals, but only if they want to be if they're just happy hanging out. Um, and if and if they're, they're being themselves, yeah, if they're just being themselves, then you'll get like the greatest performances ever because it's just it's really pure and unaffected. As long as she had some graham crackers, she was like really good on set. And then it was really specific. We wanted like the Farrah Fawcett of miniature horses, and so the, her her like her flowing golden mane that was like you know backlit, you know that was like really that was that was uh, we wanted to look like yeah like a you know like a. Um, uh, like a 70s, like a cute animal poster, you know, you see on the wall with every, every shot of her like that. We, we have a, um, <laughs> I just remember we, we have a funny outtake where we were filming her on the dunes by the, by the, by the, by the ocean and she's just sitting there and the wind's blowing through her hair and then she starts nodding off. <laughs> it was amazing, yeah, because <laughs> she... We couldn't use it, but it was, she was just like, I wish, yeah, yeah. She, she was just filled with weird... Well, she was so mellow, like the full, we learned so much, like the, the, the regular size horses, as I say in the movie, they, they had more distinct personalities and, and riding on them and, and training on them, but just, you could see, you know, there some days they're in a good mood or bad mood. And um, Daisy was just always the same. So it looked, like, it was not the most, um, and she, which, you know, so she was, yeah, uh, didn't have the wide range of emotions that some of the full size horses is, did. And she was just, she was just happy hanging out, like nothing, didn't really care where we were, except, and she's from Utah. And when we took her to the ocean, which was shot on the Oregon coast, it was so, that was like, she perked up and like, she was constantly like staring into infinity at the ocean. And like, it was like blowing her mind. And it was like really neat that, that she finally, like it was the most, and then the wind was blowing through her hair and all this stuff. So was, I, we got so much footage <laughs> of her uh, uh, hanging out on the beach. Um, before I forget, I wanted to give a shout out to uh, Scott Cusio, our production designer, who is with us tonight. Um, he did an incredible job. He built that that Western town was was built from scratch, and uh, and and um, it, yeah, it, it was it was uh, so fun working with him. Hi. I also wanted to say I love 40 Guns and also Johnny Guitar. Cool. I was like, I love 40 Guns. <laughs> it's so good. I if know, you haven't right? seen them, yeah, see, like they're, they're, they're progressive by any standards, you know, yeah. I mean, but especially for the time. I know, exactly. It's, anyway, 
So um, <laughs> I wanted to ask, um, you had mentioned Utah and um, Oregon Coast. I wanted to ask because I'm sure everyone agreed that the locations were spectacular, very beautiful. Um, what was the process like in selecting those locations? Were they, you know, pivotal to when you were um, creating the film? Were you, was it part of the writing process? And also, um, you know, I guess, uh, did you always uh, think that you were going to film where you did? Um, well, we, we, when, when, when we were thinking about the opening, uh, which is in the red rock kind of desert look, um, at that point we knew what we were kind of doing with the genre and, and we liked the idea of kind of opening it more traditional and, and that kind of desert feel that you see in a lot of Westerns. Uh, but we always knew that we wanted to shoot the bulk of it, in, uh, of the film up in the mountains and have like the, 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 the summertime lush Aspen, you know, green and, and, and beautiful, uh, uh, very colorful, colorful palette. Yeah, very, very colorful, which is where we wanted to go. But we, thematically, we like the idea of, of starting you in someplace similar and then just going totally different. And then you couldn't get more different than the Oregon coast and, and, and that sort of those crazy rocks and stuff. And we, we, we always thought of it like the movies being about like the, the mythic West. And like David said earlier, kind of cherry picking the best of it. And we would always tell the, uh, you know, when we were when we were talking to the the crew about you know, how to design the film and where to pick locations, it was it was always as if we would say it was always as if someone from from like Europe or some other country who had never visited America was trying to tell you what they heard about the West, the Wild West, and everything gets shrunken down to a very convenient. Like you can hop from the coast all the way to the desert to the mountains, and it all makes sense to them because that's what America is, and. Uh, that, yeah, so that's 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 why we kind of chose that. But and then technically Utah had most of that, you know, just um, you know, for 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 geographically, like we were able to capture most, like the the Red Rock area is this place called Goblin Valley, which is about four and a half hours south of Salt Lake, and which we found by accident or randomly because we were just we were dro we drove all through New Mexico and and Utah and Oregon on a big long trip scouting, and. Um, and uh, we just saw a sign on the side of the road that said Goblin Valley this way. And, and you can't uh, pass that up. Yeah. If it, see, if it had a boring name, would, like, yeah, yeah we like would have. Johnson's Valley. We'd be like, all right, let's keep going. <laughs> but it was like Goblin Valley. And it's this most, this, this crazy landscape that uh, it was really hard to get to. Um, and so it's not over photographed. I think they've used it in a couple sci fi movies, but not a lot of Westerns. And it was really, it was really. Yeah, that's part of the part of the fun for us is finding like these kind of like the, we like the challenge of of these remote areas and and kind of trying to capture things. I mean, even the Oregon coast was was difficult. We like all of our trucks got stuck in the sand at one point or another. We had to dig them all out because while the tide was coming in, the tide was coming in, and we got a little nervous. But from the outset, we, we yeah we wanted like the rocky shores, and I just I don't know we. Um, we always we like filming around water, so I guess that, that kind of came into it with that. But some of it, you know, and, and also some of it, you're f we're finding, you, you know, you're, you're sometimes you're able to find a place that fits perfectly with your, with the script, and sometimes you have to adapt, and then it becomes more interesting. I mean, like when we filmed in Oregon, like the the, the very last scene in the movie with with uh, Penelope uh, um, and a butterscotch on on the shore. Um, we picked this place that was called Sunset Bay, and it has the most amazing sunsets with the, the sun descending right down in between um, the, the, the two sides of the cove. And um, we scouted the day before, and it had just this giant red sun. And then, 
then the day of, we go there and we were socked in with fog that you couldn't, you couldn't make it that foggy if you wanted it to as an effect. And so at first, we, you know, we had to recalibrate. <laughs> it's like, okay, anything to look different. But then, but then we loved it. So it's just so much more dreamy of an ending. And then it, and then it bookended well with the, the foggy coastline in the, in the beginning as well. So it's just, yeah, sometimes it's finding what we w exactly we want, and then sometimes it's adapting. Yep. Yeah. Um, well, that's the movie Magic we're spoiling, but those were, those were stunt ants. Um, uh, they were stunt, but... Especially trained ants. Um, um, the, the wolf was, that was, you know, the wolf yeah. was supposed to be trained. The wolf was like, as much as you can train a wolf, which is not very much, so it was just, it was... No, it was very much a wolf, it was, and it was a little scary. But we—it was this. Yeah, yeah, there was some moments where, like, the the wolf was—you would just basically put down meat, and it would kind of run around. Um, we had a small crew for the wolf stuff. Yeah. And then there was one moment where the wolf was like, "Okay, everybody freeze," and the wolf just kind of wanted to wander away, and then we had to go wrangle him back. Um, yeah, that's the thing with that, with wolves. They kind of look at you, and you don't know what they're gonna do. Well, like we didn't know when the the oh oh yeah no it has a handler it was, it was a guy from Idaho who was yeah more or less yeah, yeah. <laughs> for the most part he did but but some of it you can't like there's a scene when we, the first time you see a wolf and it and it just you know it came down and was drinking from the creek and we couldn't you can't plan that it's just like you just keep filming and get happy accidents and then at the end you know I mean. From the script stage, it was like wolf tugging at leg and at, at Rufus's leg in a tree, you know. And it's like really easy to write that than to execute it. It's more of a challenge, but it was so it felt so it was so gratifying when, you know, uh, yeah, when we got it. So um, yeah, uh, that and and that just I don't know, just like trying to plan as much as you can, and then just being lucky and adapting with the with the crew. I'm, uh, I mean, I th that we had a I know there's like a, a just a a quick shot of a moose in there. And that was um, from, we were shooting in the wilderness, so we didn't have it, you know, we don't, can't really block anything off. And, you know, when when some moose decided to invade the set, you you have no choice in the matter. And you just kind of like lay low and wait till they move on. But we got some footage. So it's just, that was, we were definitely in the, in the wilderness. We have time for one or two more questions. Yes, sir. I liked it so much, I didn't want it to end. Are you thinking about doing a part two? <laughs> no. Oh, thank you. Um, that story, uh, no, that story is, is, is done. Um, but but we, we definitely want to do more. We'd love to do more Westerns along with, with other genres. But, um, but uh, th for this story, I think that's, that's it. <laughs> thank you. Um, I'll take you and then you in the back. Uh, so this is a question about the writing process. Um, you mentioned a few films that sort of inspired or influenced this, um, and obviously it's genre. So while you're writing the script and doing the rewriting stuff, how much do you allow yourself to watch those films, read those scripts, like devour that stuff? And how much do you feel like you need to like stay away from it just to maintain your story and the originality of your story? I, th I think some of it... Very rarely are we watching them at the same time. It's mostly just like a cumulative effect of like a lifetime of watching uh, westerns. Um, but we're never and and like the ones that we you know. I think you know once we when we're when we're like leading up to making the film and bringing other people on board, we'd we'd share with them particular films just to you know as, as a frame of reference for, just forever and kind of help you know be in sync with with the the you know the kind of tone we're going for, but. Um, we're never, I think we try not to, yeah, when writing like 
not not seen anything. Um, although I guess it just it depends. I don't know. We won't. It's like we don't have hard fast rules. But in general, it's like a lot of the films we mentioned I haven't seen in years and years. You know. But um, I mean, one of uh, all time favorite directors is this guy Bud Bedeker. Who, um, if you haven't seen any of his films, they're they're incredible. And his heyday was in the fifties. And he made all these westerns. So I guess they're considered B westerns, but with uh, with Randolph Scott, and they're they're um, and I, I always go back to those because they're they're real. On the surface, they can seem kind of straightforward and almost saccharine, especially with with Randolph Scott's kind of hero character. But then the scripts are so subversive and get so dark, and it's like in all of these films, Randolph Scott's character is really wholesome, and he finally he finally kind of wins at the end, but it's in not the way he wanted, and in a really unsad. He gets what he he you know he saves the the damsel in distress or whatever, but then it's a really unsatisfying <laughs> ending for him, um, uh, like the price of vengeance, you know, um, and that sort of thing. So I I, I don't know he he's some his that uh, Bedecker's work is something we always go back to. Um, yeah, I really loved the movie. I thought it was lyrical, mesmerizing, and really, really funny, and your performances were terrific. Uh, can you talk a little bit about um, Anton's penis? Was it real? Uh, and if it wasn't real, um, you know, is his penis that big in real life? Well, we, that was, we did a lot of research, and in, in that was average size in the Wild West. <laughs> Everything was bigger and mythic in the past, and we cast on bladder size for Anton. Um, uh, uh, the the truth is, um, we we had a wonderful crew in in Utah that was probably ninety percent Mormon, and um, they were awesome. And our effects guys uh, showed up one day with the gag, and so they're responsible for the the, the size of it all. So they, well, we had a range. We picked medium size, but. Um, anyhow, anyway, anyway, um, yeah, I don't know. From the script stage, that was a, like uh, some stuff. You know, it changes as you're making it. But from a script stage, that that was an image. You know, very early on, that had to everything. The way that went down had to look that way. Um, and I also like this is our first time we've ever gotten an R rating, which is fun for us. And I like I love the description that comes with R rating. It's both like accurate and extremely misleading because it says like brief extreme nudity and and so you know if a lot if, if, if people are if, you know i remember when i was a kid and you're looking at like different ratings you know that you could, you could watch hbo or cinemax or something and you're like based that your, your whole viewing on on that listing and i like the idea of some someone so, expecting yeah. something else <laughs> than what they get someone's gonna rent this movie for the wrong reasons <laughs> and that's fine with us yeah. so. <laughs> um, as much as i'd love to end on that question we'll take uh one more right here Oh, the question is about the Chinese travelers. Um, we just, um, I just, you know, because we, we like the idea of, of, um, of, of, of the, the... Oh, oh, oh well, oh, I mean, there oh. was, I don't know, there were a lot of Chinese, like working on the railroads, like tons in the 1800s. So it was, it actually was accurate, but uh, we like the idea of just a, a, a different group of people being disenfranchised by... Yeah, yeah. We, we well, that was... Um, yeah, we just liked this, uh, other other people with a whole another story in the background that of, of of having their own rough time with the West. Yeah. Well, I'm afraid we have to end it there. But uh, David, Nathan, cool. Thanks so much, Thanks so much for coming Thanks out. So we appreciate it. Oh, and, and the movie comes out uh, tomorrow in in uh, New York and LA. So if you, if you liked it, please tell your friends because we, we we need all the help we can get <laughs> getting the word out. Appreciate it. Thank you guys.
The Close-Up from the Film Society of Lincoln Center is produced by Michael Odemark. Our opening music is by Steelism. You can subscribe to The Close-Up on iTunes and Stitcher. The Film Society of Lincoln Center is a nonprofit arts organization based in New York City, supported by individuals just like you. Founded in 1969 to celebrate American and international cinema, the Film Society presents year-round programming recognizing established and emerging filmmakers, supporting important new work, and enhancing awareness, accessibility, and understanding of the moving image. To learn more about what we do and support the Film Society by becoming a member, visit filmlink.org, F-I-L-M-L-A-N-C.org. The Film Society of Lincoln Center. Film lives here.